I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is the executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, and she's been working to shape the field for many years. I had a ton of fun sitting down with Fran Siegel to learn more earlier this spring, and I'm excited to share with you her unique story of passion, resolve, patience, and ambition. She's an impressive person that has literally helped build the field of impact investing brick by brick. Today, she is working day in and day out to keep the movement moving forward and filling gaps that still exist a couple of decades in. But what has shaped her life and direction is an impressive story. So I grew up in Queens, in Flushing, New York. So I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, my dad grew up in the Bronx. My mother grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Queens. I went to college at Barnard. Uh, so all New York. Wow. And um, grew up in a liberal Jewish household, very kind of social justice focused. Mm. Um, and you know, public schools. So went to public elementary school, uh, public junior high, uh, very integrated mm. uh, student base. And when I was about 14, my parents moved to suburban New Jersey. Oh, goodness. And it was a big culture shock. <laughs> and so you can imagine coming from, I wouldn't quite call it an inner city school, but it was a tough junior high school, very integrated. And, and, and I just grew up in a very integrated environment. And I went to a very... Um, homogeneous, uh, very white uh, high school. Wow. And so that was uh, an interesting moment sure. and one that felt strange to me socially. Um, so, yeah, and my father... Um, what were some of the decisions the, that went into kind of the, the move? Was it a, a it was, job transfer or...? No, it was purely uh, access to better public schools. Okay. So wow. private school wasn't an option. And so we uh, went to, to public schools. And so my brother went to um, uh, a suburban middle school and high school. And I went there for high school and then quickly went back into the city <laughs> and uh, went to, to Barnard College at Columbia, which was great. I majored in economics and uh, really thought that I would go to Wall Street. Oh, interesting. And ended up um, going into the contemporary art world. And, um, which was great. So and how did, really how did you go from a BS in economics to the contemporary art world? So my father's a businessman and my mother's an artist. And I grew up, uh, around art, a lot of art museums in New York and kind of went into the business of art. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, really enjoyed it and relocated out to Los Angeles in my early twenties to open up a gallery for, a for a New York and, uh, Cologne based gallery and, so I had an early entrepreneurial experience, which was really important and formative for me and um, ended up uh, working at a family foundation uh, out in Los Angeles. It was called the Peter Norton Family Foundation. So Peter Norton is an early software entrepreneur. Norton Utilities, Norton Antivirus was bought up by Symantec oh, and wow. he started a family foundation focused on contemporary art. And so I had two jobs. I helped um, structure grants and give grants away, which is how I got kind of interested in philanthropy. And I also curated, curated their collection of contemporary art. Oh, fantastic. So That's quite interesting. <laughs> oh my goodness. Super fun. And, and yeah. we, and the, the art collection itself was worked by young artists, but diverse artists. So wow. diverse, uh, 
in terms of gender, in terms of race, sexuality. And uh, it was a very, very dynamic collection and I really enjoyed it. And so that's sort of how I spent my 20s. Wow. So, um, so grew up in New York, but then moved to the suburbs. I'm sure there, obviously, you know, a, a culture shock. Um, did you, did your parents have much of a discussion with you in that? Or was it just, hey, we're moving to the suburbs, we need better schools. Um, how did that make you feel? And, and what kind of, uh, were there any experiences in your high school years um, being removed from what you understood to be probably normal, uh, kind of this um, integrated school system um, that was very familiar to you? into this homogenous system. Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the things that you experienced that maybe uh, shaped your perspective on, on, uh, on community today? Mm-hmm. I definitely experienced a, a, a loss of the heterogeneity mm-hmm. of uh, growing up in an integrated, in integrated schools and integrated uh, neighborhoods. And it felt strange to be in a predominantly white suburban environment. Um, there were kind of socioeconomic implications, there were racial implications. And um, I think the way that I coped was to focus a lot on academics, focus on getting into college, getting back to New York. There you go. (laughs) And I was, you know, a lot of sports and I was a- That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it it had to be a a tough decision for your parents though. Uh, You know, uh, growing up in inner city New York um, and with, a liberal progressive kind of worldview, but then recognizing the importance of education and, and wanting to provide the best for you and your brother Mm -hmm. and the greatest opportunities for you to progress, uh, probably brought some confliction recognizing, okay, we have the agency, the ability to move our family for better schools. Uh, so man, that, that had to have been just an unbelievable, difficult, difficult decision for them. I think it probably was. Um, and it, really had a, a big implication for my father because he was commuting into the city. So wow. it was a much bigger commute. And, you know, I remember him, you know, taking the 6am bus and getting home really late. And it was, it was hard on him, but it was a sacrifice that they made for our education. And I think that that's maybe a, a classic kind of uh, Jewish progressive household, you know, a primacy on education. And, um, they made the sacrifice and to move away from friends and family, uh, a harder commute so that we could have a better education. That's cool. So you, you got to this family foundation and I know as a part of your story that that was a, a f- pretty formative moment, uh, you know, working on as a program officer, more on the grant side, but then it really kind of starting to think about, uh, the endowment, the capital, and like, how do we, how do we think about our values, mission, return, community, and impact, and all of these things. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about that experience at the Family Foundation and what you came to understand and where that led you uh, beyond that. Yeah, so this Family Foundation um, gave, you know, some social service grants, but they also gave um, grants to contemporary art, and the kind of contemporary art that, that, that they were uh, interested in supporting, and the kind of contemporary art that this couple was, Peter and Eileen Norton, were interested in collecting, again, was very much focused on diversity, uh, which was fantastic, and I really enjoyed it. But I started to wonder over time how the endowment was invested. So as you may know, I, I know that you know, as your <laughs> listeners probably also know, that in order to maintain your charitable tax status as a foundation, you need to give away 5% in grants to charitable entities. And over time, I started, and, and I will say that 
the kind of grant making we were giving, I think, was very progressive, interestingly structured, um, even insurgent. Like we were, would give curators grants to young curators to mm. buy works of emerging artists for major institutions. Oh, wow. And that was a way of subverting the power uh, structures that exist in wow. museums uh, where it's the chief curator and the board members that really have and, and committees that have votes. And so it was about circumventing and giving agency and power to these young curators. Wow. Uh, so that was fantastic. But over time, I started wondering how the endowment was invested and whether it was invested unconsciously across purposes to the social justice and economic justice and racial justice orientation of the grant making. Yeah. And that really led me to go to business school. Wow. And um, that's, that's, a, that's why I went, yeah. just to understand how to think about investment in a different way. And this was just for perspective. I ended up going to business school in, from 96 to 98. Yeah. And it was there that you authored a piece on, on, the, purpose of, on, on the purpose of money and endowments and, and how we think about about these things. Talk to me a little bit about that. And, and, you know, 98, I mean, this is, this is much before impact investing was even coined. So, um, what did, what did that mean for you personally? And then also professionally, where did that, where did that take you? Yeah. So I, I went to business school at Harvard and, um, at the time that I was there in the mid nineties, there was a, an initiative on social enterprise that John Whitehead, who was a former chair of Goldman Sachs, uh, founded, but it was very much focused on nonprofit social entrepreneurship. So uh, using the techniques and practices of for-profit business to make nonprofits more entrepreneurial and more successful, presumably. Mm. And I had come from that world. I was much more interested in how to use for-profit business models and the capital markets uh, as a way to make change in the world. And so there weren't a lot of classes or any classes that covered this issue. Mm -hmm. And so I, in a way, I charted my own course of study. So I ended up doing two papers. One um, was a year-long field study on women entrepreneurs' access to venture capital. Wow. And um, at that time in 98, uh, women entrepreneurs received 2.5% of venture capital. And now 20 years plus hence, it's like 2.2%. It's basically the same. Yeah. Um, and we know that women, uh, African-American women entrepreneurs get around 40 basis points of venture capital. And so what I tried to do is look under the hood of that statistic to try to understand why it was that women weren't getting more um, venture capital and uh, didn't you know just take it at its face and say... Um, uh, they have lack of access. And of course, that that was part of it, but you also have to look at why different types of entrepreneurs yeah. start businesses um, and uh, why they run businesses. And so tried to take a nuanced look, look at, you know, technology education and all that. So that was really fun. And um, that said, 20 years later, I'm uh, disappointed to see that the dial has not really moved very much. And while we see women like the, the number of deals that women do in venture capital is going up. There's an upwardly sloping line. Their percentage of capital or the average deal size is actually fairly flat. Wow. And so women are maybe getting more access to venture capital in terms of numbers, but the deal size is, is, um, isn't, isn't growing. So that was formative for me. And I think that the dynamic around minority entrepreneurs, access to ac um, uh, equity capital, people of color is a similar dynamic, yeah. not exactly 
the same. Mm. And then the second piece of independent work that I did was a paper for my venture capital professor, um, this guy named Josh Lerner, who's very well known in the venture capital private equity space. And I tried to look at, um, like, if there was an x-axis of financial returns and a y-axis of impact, I tried to look at um, whether there was a trade-off or whether there had to be a trade-off or if there wasn't a trade-off between impact returns and financial returns. And so I plotted, you know, philanthropy um, on the, you know, presumably high impact but no financial return, even though there's, you know, a tax shield, but... Sure. <laughs> forgive, forgive me the detail. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Forgive me the detail. Um, and then venture capital, which is without regard for impact and, you know, without necessarily intentional impact. And then I tried to create a, a you know, a curve that connected the two. So there's a line and I posited that there was like an efficient frontier mm. where you could have very strong impact returns and very strong venture, venture style returns. And, Josh Lerner didn't agree with me at all. He oh, thought goodness. that if there was a curve that connected those two dots of venture capital and a philanthropy, it was concave, meaning oh. if you take impact factors into account, you suboptimize financial return every time. Wow. And I thought that that was not the case. So that was one kind of thing that he didn't agree with. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to be tr- you know, it was a different world sure. back then. I mean, I, I understand why he didn't agree with me, but I still had a, a, a well, some conviction both, around it. Yeah, well, in both cases, you're, you were a pioneer uh, to even just identify those as, as challenges and opportunities, problems that we could address as a market in a, in a conscious way. Um, so he disagreed, but there were some that maybe agreed with you. And so beyond, so yeah, it, what unbelievable um, confidence and courage, despite obviously his reputation, to continue forward. So where did you go after that piece and, and what, what, uh, what, uh, what transpired in the, in the years following? Well, j- before we advance there, there was just one other kind sure. of conclusion that he didn't agree with. <laughs> and that is that the spending your life making money by the venture capital side or really, you know, without regard, accumulating wealth without regard to social, economic, and environmental impact. And then giving it, um, this gets to the two-pocket issue that you've written about, um, and, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years hence, starting a charitable, you know, a foundation where you give away 5% of your money and 95% of it is, is invested without regard for impact was not the best way overall to create returns, basket of returns for society. Oh, interesting. And, um... I, that's how I've, that has been a blueprint, that, those two conclusions have been a blueprint for my career um, going forward. So um, I feel like in some ways I've had an impact pure play career, even at a time when, you know, impact investing as such, you know, it would have been 10, 10 years before the term was coined and, and the market has come up to meet us the way it has now. So if I may, uh, at that moment though, you're at Harvard. Uh, you've got all these, these experiences, these beliefs, and, and yet you have, I mean, Harvard has unbelievable faculty, right? World renowned. And you disagree with them. How did you feel? Like, how did that make you feel it? You know, you're here, you are a student, uh, putting yourself into this, to the studies that you're doing and really profoundly, I think, 
uh, a believer in what you're seeing and what you're tr- what you're putting forward, how did that make you feel to almost, in some sense, um, be rejected for what you were putting forward as uh, as a as a new concept? Yeah, um, I think in some ways. I'm a contrarian. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and um, I felt like the fact that, that I was able to have this dialogue with um, with Josh Lerner and that he disagreed with me was a point of pride. Mm. A- and it would have been, well, I, I go to my reunion every five years. And so my five-year reunion, I, and of course, he's always giving, uh, you know, a, an alumni lecture because everyone wants to know what he has to say about venture capital and private equity. Mm. And so I went at year five and I said, Professor Lerner, you may remember me. (laughs) I wrote this piece for you on the trade-off. You didn't agree with me. Um, And uh, he still didn't agree with me. And then 10 years, uh, 10 year, um, I was working for a small venture capital fund and accelerator. And I said, how about now? You know, do you, (laughs) do you believe me now? (laughs) And, um, he said, get back to me when you have your returns. Uh-huh. He wasn't interested in Im- my impact metrics at all. Um, and then year 15, he started getting more interested. I think MacArthur Foundation actually um, had him do some a study on uh, community development investment investing. So he was kind of coming around. And then Around my 20th um, reunion, I was at HBS for a gathering of impact, market rate impact fund managers, and he gave the evening keynote speech. And I didn't know if he remembered me or my work, and he gave me a shout out uh, and said, you know, 20 years ago, someone in this room wrote a paper that basically um, kind of foretold what what you're doing now. And um, I didn't agree with her and I don't know oh if he, I don't know if he totally agrees with me wow. now, but I think it's, uh, things are coming around and you know, the world is changing yeah. as we know, and there's resource constraint and population growth, income inequality, you know, direct personal experience of climate change. And these are like material factors. And so I think, you know, the world's coming up to meet us yeah. now. I think it's, it's worth noting. I mean, I think, there are so many people would receive criticism and um, not respond in the way you did. So the fact that you you took it and every five years went back, um, you know, is a testament to your courage and just like, no, I, I, I truly believe in this and I'm going to put myself into this. And I think if we can build some momentum as a community, we can really do something here. We can we can really force change and and really see some transparency come that that's beneficial to the markets and beneficial to the communities in which we live. So kudos to you. Um, so went to uh, several different things beyond that, but now you're at the uh, U.S. Impact Investment Alliance. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like one, I want to, what's two things. What is the purpose of it? What's the value of this alliance, uh, the mission of it? And uh, what are you, what are you working on uh, in the present day? Sure. So I've uh, was recruited to be the inaugural executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, which is a field-building organization dedicated to increasing the flow of capital for impact. Mm-hmm. When we use the term impact investing, we mean investing for social, intentional, social, economic, and environmental impact alongside financial returns across asset classes. So some folks use the term impact investing to mean uh, private debt and equity, 
maybe real assets. For us, we also look at the capital markets. Mm. We look at the public markets and, you know, really from cash to real assets, the whole asset class spectrum. And um, uh, we believe in a future that uh, where measurable social, economic, and environmental impact is at the center of investment decision-making, not just alongside risk and return, but we believe that impact um, is implicated in risk and return, especially in a world that is changing. And um, we work in a couple different ways, um, and I can dig in wherever you'd like. Um, The first is around public policy, so creating, uh, driving private capital for public good through government, uh, federal government engagement. Uh, The second is catalyzing capital flows by working with uh, select market segments of of asset owners, uh, mainly uh, foundations and and donor-advised funds. And the third is more bottom-up movement building. Yeah. So I think um, one thing about the U.S. Impact Investment Alliance, so I think it's it's interesting. What what do you see as the importance of this alliance at this point? So, you know, the field's been around a decade plus. Uh, Your work was 20 years ago. last couple of years, there's been a lot of signals that, that there's a there's a great shift in the market, which is amazing. So what what is the importance of the alliance at this point in history um, to really press this forward um, as a movement? Yeah, so the, the and there was a, a panel at the Winter Innovation Summit about impact investing going, I think they called it from the shadows to yeah. the mainstream or yeah. the margins to the mainstream. And that has really been borne out. Um, and I think that that's great. Um, and I applaud the mainstreaming of impact investing, but we're also watching with concern. Yeah. And so scaling the field with impact integrity is something that is really important to us. And so um, I believe that measurable social, economic, and environmental impact is an investor right. Mm. And we know that all investing has an impact, all, you know, the food you eat, the car you drive, the clothes you wear have an impact. And I believe with generational shifts, um, millennials and uh, Gen Z, they will demand transparency. And once transparency comes, what we are going to find is that there are a host of, yes, positive, but also negative externalities that have been, um, the expense has been on the back of communities and the environment and workers and others. And uh, I call it off ba- off balance sheet financing. Yeah. Um, and there's this almost like this phantom balance sheet. And when we have transparency and we have priced externalities, uh, the balance sheets and income statements of companies, public companies and private companies alike, will look different. Yeah. And to me, that is uh, something that we strive for. Yeah. I think it's interesting because um, it is it is interesting when th- when things become mainstream, you start to see everybody jump on the bandwagon. Uh, because there's a lot, there's a lot of money, quote unquote, to be made as things become more adopted and accessible. But the, the scariness of that, or the danger, is that the scale happens one at a pace that uh, that discounts the impact, or uh, we greenwash. Um, so talk to me a little bit about so that uh, that's an uh, that's an interesting uh, I think role for the alliance is to make sure that we scale with integrity and scale with the right purposes in mind. Uh, and then we're watching these things and we're, we're, we're uh, measuring these things. Uh, I wrote down as you were talking, just this intentional impact. I think it's a, uh, it's an interesting word choice. Uh, impact investing is intentional impact, um, which is, which is really helpful because I think uh, in, in our society where we see a lot of greenwashing or a lot of great marketing around 
CSR and other things, that it's important to, to really think about the intentionality with which entrepreneurs and investors are pursuing the impact in the world. So uh, talk to me a little about, as you see it going from the shadows to the mainstream, what gives you hope? And then on the other side, what gives you pause? Mm-hmm. Okay, what gives me hope? Um, until recently, I lived in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, I was the chief investment officer at Impact Assets, which yeah. is an impact investing donor advised funds, a fund that just uh, topped a billion dollars of assets under management. And it was a a, a great group and a, and a really fun job. Yeah. And it uh, enabled me to teach at USC one night a week oh, at wow. the business school. I actually taught undergrad and business school, business school students and grad. And those students gave me hope, mm. um, especially the undergrads. I mean, these are students that are 18, 19, 20, and they fundamentally understand that uh, resources are constrained, that the world is changing, and that we need to integrate and understand and make transparent impact if we want to operate in the world and live in the world and thrive in the world the way they want to. So those, especially the young ones uh, who just implicitly get it now, granted it's a self-selecting group. Um, So that's something that gives me hope. Um, And uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention on this topic of impact integrity that um, uh, I think it's a hope play (laughs) So we recently worked with uh, a coalition of foundations and other donors to raise a donor collaborative called the Tipping Point Fund. And um, it's a consortium of nine donors. We raised about $12.5 million. And it's a grant facility to help build the hardest to fund public goods that will allow the impact investing field to grow with integrity. And so we uh, kind of canvassed with a consultant and a group of senior staff members of these uh, leading foundations that practice impact investing. We canvassed the field, public markets, private markets, retail investors, institutional investors, and identified a sense, a, a set of barriers uh, yeah. to growth with integrity. We sifted those, all of those challenges uh, to understand which ones are best addressed by grant capital versus which ones will the market solve for on its own. Uh, we sifted again to understand which ones um, would be best suited to a pooled approach to grant making. So instead of foundations and other funders going it alone, but going it together. Wow. And what areas are chronically underfunded? Yeah, and the areas, the the funding priorities that we, we that we uh, honed in on. One is public policy and public engagement. If you think about other kinds of um, industries, they spend they spend money on public policy. <laughs> they spend money on public engagement. They it's understand that it's a thing <laughs> and it's really important, and that it's so scantily funded in our yeah. field, and. Public policy is so catalytic, can be so catalytic to our field. Um, And the second area is indeed around data metrics and measurement. And so I think all of us, when we speak, uh, those of us that speak about impact investing, folks want to understand about the growth. They want to understand if there's a financial trade-off and they want to understand about impact washing and of course how to measure impact. And so we have raised this donor collaborative and we're continuing to, to raise grant funds as a way of being very targeted to fund the, the most uh, chronically underfunded public goods that everyone enjoys. So we have, by my count, something like nine or 10 incumbent private equity funds that are raising 
multi-hundred million dollar funds, multi-billion dollar funds. They're gathering assets um, and they're doing so, they're kind of surfing a wave that has been built over decades with precious grant capital. And um, uh, we feel like folks should fund the, the, the rails that they ride on when they deploy capital. So, you know, join us to help build the impact investing infrastructure to try to scale the field with integrity. That's great. And, I, and I, you've been working on that for, for a while. Mm-hmm, two um, years. Yeah. And it, <laughs> that's, that's impressive. I mean, cause it, it's definitely, uh, it's a need in the space. Um, but it's one that oftentimes gets overlooked and underfunded. Um, and so to kind of pioneer that and kind of press through like, yes, I understand. Like, but we really need this. We need this as a field if we're going to scale with integrity. So kudos to you and the team. Um, well, I wanted to, so what does give you pause? Cause you know, you, 20 years ago you wrote this paper, uh, but I'm sure even today, as you look at where we are as, as an industry, as we think about impact investing, as we think about philanthropic capital endowments, um, is there anything that gives you pause as we look to the future or things that you're, you still see as, um, as, uh, trouble areas that we need to be aware of as we continue to scale with integrity? Yeah, so as the field grows and we uh, we tend to be very fixated on the supply side, the supply of capital, um, mm. and I'll admit that, you know, I, I am too because yeah. <laughs> we need the capital in order to sure. deploy the capital to, you know, generate the impacts that we seek. Um, but I still think that there are misperceptions of risk around impact investing. Um, I think that there is a discounting of some of the data that we have that shows that uh, there are certain asset classes and certain kinds of investments where you can have impact as well as um, financial returns and instances where impact actually can mitigate risk and drive return. Yeah. So I still think uh, the capital markets are um, motivated in different ways. Um, you know, there was the business roundtable announcement in August of 2019 where 181 CEOs signed on to the new statement of, of, of corporate purpose, mm-hmm. moving from a Milton Friedman-esque kind of 70s version of maximizing um, shareholder value um, without regard to other aspects of value yeah. uh, to one where uh, we, they would look to maximize uh, stakeholder value, including but not limited to shareholder value. I think that that was great, but I also feel like there needs to be some accountability. Mm. When we think about what makes markets move, it's you know transparency and accountability and access to data, and um, we'll look to see whether those um, those 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 CEOs and those corporations you know, rise to the challenge. Yeah, their words um, become action, right? Mm-hmm. And it, this is at the same time that the Business Roundtable has been lobbying the SEC around the erosion of shareholder rights. Oh, wow. So I think we need to, and this is where, you know, policy really matters. And we think a lot at the Alliance about the power. Well, how do you shape markets? You shape markets through regulation, yeah. but you also shape markets through self-regulation and and uh, and kind of market uh, shaping behavior. And so, um, we keep our eye on both. That's great. So I think this is a question that I think you are uniquely positioned to answer or at least discuss. And it's somewhat related, but, um, as an educator, um, and you mentioned kind of the hope that you have in this, the next generation, what are some of the things within 
education, specifically higher education, or maybe it's uh, uh, high school, uh, that we can really help. Uh, what, what do we need to do in order to continue to press into shaping uh, the future of our markets and the leaders that are going to step into these corporations. Um, what would you say to institutions of higher learning uh, that they need to be considering and pressing into uh, and courses that they need to be uh, considering to, to really help uh, move this forward? At the very basic level, and I think that this is high school or, you know, post-secondary education, critical thinking skills, um, you know, understanding about the subjectivity of, you know, the representation of history as objective truth, mm. um, you know, just some basic, you know, that, that news has a point of view. Yeah. Um, history has a point of view that yeah. isn't, isn't always inclusive and often is not yeah. inclusive. I think that we should be teaching personal finance skills in high school and in college. Um, and, uh, that is super important for, for everyone. I'm a fan of, um, of entrepreneurship education at the high school level. Um, mm. You know, the American dream is built on, uh, you know, economic empowerment through entrepreneurship. Yeah. And uh, I think we see a renewed interest in entrepreneurship as we see um, second and third tier cities as well as um, rural communities being hollowed out by the consolidation of corporate power. Um, the flight to uh, the, the flight to cities, um, the rise of technology, uh, the rise of opioid addiction, and mm -hmm. so thinking about entrepreneurship and community re revitalization, I think, is really important. And so the sense of community and yeah. the sense of hope in communities, I think, is really important. Um, so those are some initial ideas. Fran is passionate that every investor, in her words, know what they own and better understand the implications of what is in there and the impact that it is having. If you'd like to learn more about Fran and the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, visit impinvalliance.org. And make sure to follow Fran on Twitter, where she posts a ton of great content, at Fran Siegel. Again, if you've liked what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.